Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Premier Li Qiang says China-ASEAN cooperation will stay firm as long as both sides keep to the right path. The UK's second largest city has effectively declared itself bankrupt. What are the reasons? Saudi Arabia will extend its voluntary cut of 1 million barrels per day until the end of the year. What does this mean for the global oil market? Chinese Premier Li Qiang says cooperation between China and ASEAN will be as firm as ever as long as both sides can keep to the right path. He made the remarks at the 26th China-ASEAN summit. Li said China-ASEAN cooperation has come a long way thanks to their keen understanding about hardships. He added that China and ASEAN countries have been committed to the unwavering pursuit of peace with a strong aspiration for development, and both take real action to safeguard regional stability. Li also participated in the 26th ASEAN Plus 3 summit on Wednesday, during which he emphasized that the ASEAN, China, Japan, South Korea, and indeed all countries in Asia share a common home, common interests, and common opportunities. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Dr. Zhou, thanks for joining us. Um, so Premier Li mentioned that as long as both sides keep to the right path, cooperation between China and ASEAN will remain firm. What, in your opinion, constitutes the right path for China-ASEAN relations? We know that China and ASEAN countries have a very long history of cooperation, even before the modern society. Well, came to the modern society, there are still many things that both sides have reached for the consensus, like the five principles of the peaceful and coexistence of the both sides. We uh, respect the other uh, other sides' sovereignties and we are not trying to interfere with the other, uh, other sides' domestic issues and we respect the right of the development. I think that recently we see that the world is under uh, many pressures. Well, both sides still trying to address these challenges by the cooperation instead of uh, competition. I think that is definitely one of a very big examples for the other countries to follow. Well, if you are looking at the data, the trade between these two sides has become more and more important for both sides, and that has uh, made better use of the, what they uh, are capable of, uh, of the advantages and the competitiveness to cooperate and benefit the other side. So I would say that both sides are really trying to follow this route, and because we are neighbors, where the neighbors cannot move to other sides. We cannot be interfered by the opinions of other countries out of this region. Mm-hmm. Well, Premier Li Qiang emphasized uh, mutual trust as the bridge between China and ASEAN. So how can both parties work together to build and sustain this trust amid evolving geopolitical dynamics and also territorial disputes? Yeah, I agree that trust is uh, one very important word for the, for the countries to deal with the relationship with others. Especially in nowadays, we see there are so many changes about the fluctuation of the relations, and sometimes some some countries are trying to think a different way of doing business with others. So the mutual trust should based on the actions. In my understanding, both China and ASEAN countries, we can do that because we have a very natural cooperation with each other on the supply chain, on the involvement of 
you know, the different resources and also the markets. So actually, in the past, we have been doing that for quite a while, and the people in both sides are really related with each other. We have many relatives in the other countries, and all the relationships are based on the market. So from the market to the government, both sides are trying to find out what we can do to deal with the problem. I have to say that in this world, we are facing too many new things. The new challenges, maybe they require the wisdom of both sides, but these things cannot be solved by only one part. So we are dealing with that, with the trust. And the trust is a accumulation of the assets by the cooperation, by the gradually improved relationship between the other, you know, the both sides on the economic and other uh, issues like the political or diplomatic relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, but considering the complexity of the South China Sea issue, how do you think China and ASEAN can navigate the remaining differences and effectively maintain regional peace? Actually, it's a real uh, treasury for both of us. We know that the South China Sea is a kind of areas which is being explored more and more. I mean, that, that explore is not only limited on the natural resources, like the, the, the gasoline, the natural uh, gas or other things, but also about the, the tourism, about how can we peacefully use the energy of the seawater. Actually, we know that uh, for these areas, uh, you know, a lot of the countries around these areas, they can corporately in, improve the you know benefits from the the exploration of the related economy for the principles that we have reached i think that it is very important to further to push forward on the way forward since we have some uh, common understanding about the ways of dealing uh, with the troubles trying to improve the transparency about operation and trying to cooperatively to do something to to try to benefit the people you know, in the world, we are facing many challenges. Maybe different countries have different geopolitical issues. But for us, I don't think it's a kind of a things that we cannot deal with. We can try to improve the mutual understanding and gradually set up a mechanism and trying to deal with the situation step by step. That, that needs some communication. That also needs the mutual trust among us. Mm-hmm. Well, Indonesian President Joko Widodo called for realizing mutually beneficial concrete collaboration at the summit. Uh, so how can China and ASEAN countries work together to achieve that goal? I think that uh, for both sides, we already have some very good bases. The bases are uh, are founded on the, you know, the mutual understanding of the five principles, are also uh, founded by the, the, the free trade agreement among us. So we have already had that base. But the way, you know, the way of the future is uh, uh, changed and uh, there are so many new things happening. So actually, we are doing more to improve the better support of the, you know, from the infrastructure to the culture exchange and also for the development of the supply chain. Actually, we need to try to listen to the market voices on where they want to go, like for the digital economy cooperation, like for the green economy, what the market really wants. We have many solutions. The solutions are not only suitable for Chinese own market. We want to discuss whether it is still applicable for other countries. And, and I believe that all the countries should give them wisdom also to benefit uh, from the development of China's own market. So mm-hmm. there are so many things that we can deal with. And that is definitely one thing for the common prosperities by both sides.
Yeah, and the Indonesian president also said that、um, ASEAN should not be a proxy for any party. How to understand this? Yeah, we know that in the past、uh, many years, like you, you know, in some countries for the dam issues, the, some other countries trying to interfere with the affair, which has brought a lot of、uh, disputes in the region. It's not good for those countries, for the host countries, for China, for other ASEAN countries, and it's still there. The you know the economy is still there. The people are still suffer from the underdevelopment. So I I understand that、uh, the other countries worry about China, but we are you know always been doing some peaceful development. The development are trying to address the harmonious development with other countries. We consider about the people. Maybe sometimes they are trying to give better solutions, but I don't think that they can do it because we are the countries we know the most. Uh, The the true facts of us, and we know the potentials of our cooperation. So in this regard, I would advise many of the countries in this region trying to respect the decisions of other countries and give their advices. And we are trying to do that on the base、uh, based on the equal position. We are not trying to do something based on the size of the economy. So that is definitely workable for,、mm. in my opinion. Yeah, and what do you make of this message at the ASEAN Plus Three Summit that、um, China,、uh, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN countries, and actually all Asian countries share a common home, common interests, and common opportunities? I think that、uh, we do have these、uh, common things because we do have many of、uh, habits like the cultures, like the you know even the structure of the the the,、uh, the sectors. I think there are so many similarities. We are in a similar stage of development. So in this regard, we can cooperate, trying to make better use of the resources. Like for the manufacturer,、uh, for example, the textiles. We know that many ASEAN countries are also trying to develop their textiles industries. Well, China is must be one of the the biggest uh, uh, producer of the textiles. So some of the companies from China they just invest in the ASEAN countries to help. Their development, and they also benefit from the cooperation with the laborers, with the environment, with the market. So when the resources are limited, we should not try to do everything based on our own goals, based on our own imaginations. We should try to address, you know, or take care or pay attention to other countries' need and the resources, because、mm-hmm. we want to have a sustainable development based on the green. Uh, a protection of the environment and the better use of the resources. Well, following the ASEAN summit,、uh, Li will also travel to New Delhi to attend the G20 summit. So, how do you look at this arrangement, and what objectives or priorities do you think China is likely to pursue during its participation in the G20 summit? Actually,、uh, I think the arrangement is because that、uh, you know these two conferences are just in the order of the, the timetable. So、uh, Premier Li Qiang is a、uh, very acquaintance with Chinese economy, and you know, in this world, we are trying to cooperate with other G20 members. Well, in the past, I, I mean, after the 20, 2008 global financial crisis, G20 has played a very important role in the you know cooperation, trying to improve some kind of、uh, solutions for the biggest economies in the world. So in this year, G20 are trying to do something maybe similar, but some of them are quite different. So I would say that China is also, you know, obliged to express our opinions on the G20 summit, trying to to push or trying to work with other entities to think about what are the sustainable ways of development.、Mm-hmm. Well, G20 is important, and China is also trying to play our 
uh, constructive role in this uh, in this summit. So we are not trying to only think about ourselves. We are thinking about the challenges. How can we deal with the climate change? How can we are able to 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 harness or trying to to have a better solution for the artificial intelligence? How can we deal with the, the change of the geopolitical powers? And how can we try to cooperate and address, especially the least developed economies for the weakest part of the world? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. A senior executive of world-leading consumer health products provider says he sees great potential in Chinese healthcare product market. Declan Rooney, president of Johnson and Johnson Consumer Health China, says thanks to the ongoing efforts of the Chinese government, more Chinese people have come to realize they are the first person responsible for their own health, and that means great opportunities for companies like Johnson and Johnson. In an interview with Xia Wen at this year's Sifties, Rooney also notes his company remains committed to the Chinese market, as it has ever been. Healthcare services are one of the important sectors at this year's Sifties, particularly with the focus on how technology and innovation drive advancements in health. So, how do you view the significance of Sifties as a platform to enhance communication, trade, and business? Well, first of all,、uh, thank you for your question. And first, let me say how much of an honor it was for Johnson and Johnson Consumer Health China to participate in this year's Sifties. Um, this international fair, I think, offered us with a unique opportunity to enhance and exchange our perspectives on promoting green trade and services, and exploring opportunities in a sustainable innovation. And it's not just us that has benefited. Siftis has presented all participants and all businesses with an open, world-class platform for enhancing collaboration and delivering high-quality growth. Through which we can create greater social and economic value for the industry. Now, before I talk about our specific innovation in products and services,、um, I want to briefly talk about our vision as an organization. And our vision as an organization is to be the most trusted consumer health company in China, empowering our patients, our consumers, with science-based, high-quality solutions to live healthier. And more vibrant lives every day. Right now, we have over a hundred scientists today in our China R&D center dedicated to developing new products for Chinese market. These products cover highly diverse healthcare needs, including skin health, oral health, allergy, fever, pain, cough, cold, fungal infection, digestive health, wound care, and more. Our innovation also covers various types of products. Including OTC medicines, health foods, household medical devices, and consumer products. With this broad portfolio, we provide holistic, what we call end-to-end health support, from prevention to intervention to restoration. At the same time, our innovation focuses on addressing personalized and diversified health needs. We constantly innovate our product formulations, our flavors. Our dosages and ways of administration to improve the experience, the convenience of self-care management. Through this, our aim is ultimately to increase everyone's willingness to actively manage their own health on a daily basis. 
China has launched its long-term healthcare vision, Healthy China 2030, a few years ago. And as the plan being implemented gradually, the demands of public are shifting from disease treatment-centric to prevention and health-centric. Could you elaborate more on that? And also, what's the plan of Johnson Johnson China to develop its business along with China's national strategy in healthcare? Yeah, what it says today, we, and I'd say thanks in part to the ongoing efforts of the Chinese government, more and more people have come to realize that they are the first person responsible for their own health, and that they have greater awareness of the critical role that self-care plays in their pursuit of a healthier lives. And I think that's an important trend. And also, as a world-leading consumer health company with a long history and commitment to self-care. We see this not only as a great opportunity for us, but also as a responsibility to help the public build the first line of defense in managing their health. Now, when you think about what we're doing, right? What will we do in the future? I would say, powered by our belief, we will continue to push the boundaries of science and our business model to further explore unmet self-care needs. And support the high-quality development of self-care in China by accelerating our innovation, fostering transformational partnerships, and driving localization. Since we talked about innovation just earlier, let's take a closer look at what partnerships and localization really looks like for us. So when we think about partnerships, by continuing to foster partnerships with academic institutions, associations, healthcare professionals, and business partners. We aim to build an ecosystem that enhances health education, increases access to health products, drives advances in science, and leads the development of self-care in China. Some specific examples of the transformational partnerships we're working on. Let me explain a couple. When we talk about improving health literacy, this year we've partnered with the Chinese Red Cross Foundation. And join the Allergic Rhinitis Prevention and Control Program in primary care. We extended our footprint to Yulin, to Shanxi Province, to enhance allergic rhinitis management by supporting standardized training in diagnosis and treatment and disease education. We also donated 30,000 pieces of rhinocord to support this program. Two, when we talk about increasing access. To health products, a great example of this, and one we're incredibly proud of, is the Little Yellow Light project, which we launched with May Tuan in 2021. This has fulfilled over three million nighttime orders of Motrin for children's fever relief through May Tuan's online platforms, effectively addressing the need for urgent nighttime medication for babies. We actually recently upgraded this partnership to bring. 24-hour medical delivery services to lower-tier counties. Through these partnerships like this, we aim to make self-care solutions more conveniently available to people in need, anytime and anywhere. So when you think about China, it's the world's second-largest market for Johnson and Johnson consumer health, and an integral part of our global strategic footprint, as evidenced by our supply chain footprint. We are in China for China, is what we like to say. Since the establishment, equally of Shanghai Johnson and Johnson plant back in 1988, 
we have continued to develop in-depth local partnerships to boost our reliance and we continue to invest in expanding our capacity because that is critically important to our future endeavors. We also continue to develop strong relationships with local supply chain partners, including partnerships with as many as 16 OEMs and 500 suppliers in local market. So we're incredibly proud of our endeavors, but our work is never done. It's a continued journey. Definitely innovation plays an important role. You touch upon the self-care market. I'd like to have you elaborate more on that. How do you perceive the size of the self-care market in China and also the opportunities it presents for the healthcare industry? And also, what are the characteristics of personal care demands among Chinese consumers? Yeah. So let me talk about, you know, when we think about the characteristics of, of self-care demand among Chinese pay consumers, think of it as, as China moves towards Healthy China initiative, um, we have seen the introduction of, of multiple policies that will help increase public health literacy. As a result, there is a continually growing demand among consumers in China for high quality self-care solutions. I think one obvious shift we are seeing is a greater focus on science-based healthcare. You know, this is something that is central to our company DNA, and this gives us a unique advantage in serving Chinese consumers. Now, let me talk about another part of that question, which is the potential of China's self-care market. You know, and when you when you talk about it, the self-care market in China, we're seeing a huge momentum and firmly believe in its broad prospect. And there really is nowhere else like this market in the world right now with so many favorable trends lining up for the high quality development of the self-care industry. You think of the government. China has a government that's highly committed to improving the health of its 1.4 billion people. Healthy China 2030 is an ambitious program, but one that has been backed with real action and investment from the government. You think of two, demographic. You think of China's also the home to the world's largest middle-income population with a mass of 400 million people, people who care more about their health and have the resources to actually do something positive about it. And at the same time, China's rapidly aging population will reach 400 million by 2035, as it will enter into this phase of serving an aging society. So these demographic trends, these demographic populations are incredibly important to focus on and deliver meaningful solutions. And lastly, Mr. Rooney, we know recently China has issued a number of new measures to further optimize China's foreign investment environment and beef up foreign investment inflow. So how do you view these moves? And also what's your assessment of the rebound of Chinese economy, as well as the business opportunities for multinational companies like Johnson Johnson in China going forward? Yeah, what I'd say is that, you know, as we look, we look ahead, our, our commitment to the Chinese market is as strong as it has ever been. You know, as we continue to earn trust from, as it patients, our consumers, you know, as we deliver on our promise to empower them in their pursuit of healthier lives. You know, over the years, we've seen the government's commitment to driving the high quality development of the Chinese economy and its consistent, you know, efforts to optimize the business environment for multinational companies like us. I would say all of these factors, you know, enhance our determination 
to continue to really explore and serve the Chinese market, you know, and leading, I would say, the high quality development of the consumer health industry. We see that as a responsibility. We equally believe that in an environment that promotes openness, inclusion, innovation, and collaboration, we will be able to leverage our extensive global network, tap into global resources to bring our international products to the Chinese patients and consumers, while at the same time, this open environment will enable us to export our China-grown innovation internationally, where it will empower patients and consumers around the world, ultimately again, to live happier, healthier, more vibrant lives every day, which is a responsibility we hold very dear as an organization. That's Declan Rooney, president of Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health China, speaking with my colleague Xia Wen. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. A private sector survey shows that Chinese services activities expanded at the slowest pace in eight months in August. The Taishin Services Purchasing Managers Index dropped to 51.8 in August from 54.1 in July, the lowest reading since December. Analysts say declining export orders and rising costs of raw materials, labor, and fuel are some of the main reasons for the slower expansion. But activity is still in expansionary territory. The 50-point mark separates expansion from contraction. Employment in the services sector has been in expansion territory for seven consecutive years. For more on this, Er Zhao Yang spoke with Chu Qian, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. So the latest Taishin Services PMI data shows continued expansion in China's service sector, but at a slower pace. So what are the main factors of it? Well, I think there are uh, several reasons behind this. Uh, one is uh, because the last of two quarters, the Q1 and Q2, the data are rebounding at a very, very fast pace because we have a base number uh, base number effect in here. So, which means even though in a Q3 the number are still keep on growing, but because the Q1 and Q2 are growing too fast, so you wouldn't see the growth speed will be as fast as before. But still, you're going to see the sheer value or the sheer amount of the service sector are keep on growing. That is what we call the uh, base number effect. Mm. And secondly, is because the whole macroeconomy is still been recovering. So you're not expecting people just uh, recovered from their cash flow, recovered from uh, the pandemic, immediately will keep on spending money like water. That is not reasonable. So people will treat themselves, people will enjoy their life based on their recovered balance sheet and the cash flow, uh, for example, the salary. Therefore, we still have the pressure to make sure people can still keep on growing with their income. And then the domestic services or domestic consumption will keep on growing in a, a Q3 and a Q4 and even more in the next year. And the service consumption, such as the summer tourism, has significantly rebounded. So what are the implications of this for the overall economy? Well, service sectors are very, very important, especially after we go through the pandemic period of time. People want to uh, treat themselves. People want to relax. People want to go out of home, 
and enjoy life. So this is actually a very, very normal reaction. We have already seen the similar trend happened in every other country when they just reopened their economy, like in America, in Canada, in European Union, in Singapore, in Vietnam. Every country, when they just recovered uh, the first year, we'll see uh, the uh, booming of the service sector, the domestic tourism, hospitality industry, restaurant, uh, we're going to be overheating. And that is very important for the domestic economy because domestic economy relies on service sector to create valuable jobs because they will, con uh, they will absorb more of the people, recruit more people, and also they provide a rather attractive salary. So I think that this is uh, step one to repair the whole economy. Mm -hmm. And the China Fair for Trade and Services is held in Beijing this week. So what are your views on the key highlights and trends in China's service industry? Well, everybody knows China is very famous for the manufacturing. Uh, we have the name, it's called the World Factory. So usually we paid attention too much on the Canton Fairs, uh, on the uh, products, uh, manufactured products. But also China want to you know, shift to people's impression that is China is also a very important market and a provider for the services. So I think uh, this uh, uh, trade affair in the services held in Beijing is a very important, showing the rest of the world China is still reaching out the arm, welcoming people to come to China for the tourism, for the uh, services, for the hospitality industry, for the consulting, for the design, and everything uh, you can imagine, you also can find in China. And also, China has made lots of progress in this regard. For example, in the Mihayo Gangs, uh, the creating the Genshin, a very popular around the world. And also, Chinese consulting companies are providing uh, competitive products. So, and also, letting alone Chinese tourism, because China really wants to show the world China is still reaching out the arm to welcome the tourists all over the world. A hospitality industry, Chinese cuisine, and all these service sectors are very competitive, I think, among the world. So I think through this trade affair, uh, you will get to know more about China and you will find more opportunity not only in the manufacturing and the factories, but also in the service sectors in China. And more jobs are creating in the sector. And also China has the largest growing middle income group in uh, the whole world. We have billions of them. So as this group are growing and growing, uh, besides the manufacturing product, I think service will become a more and more important growth point for uh, their income as well as their consumption. Mm. And the service sector is still showing resilience and the employment in this sector has been in expansion territory for seven consecutive years here in China. So why is the service sector so important for employment, do you think? Comparing to uh, traditional agriculture and manufacturing industry, we find that service sectors are always more keen to recruit people and always are more likely to pay higher and quality salary. This is reasonable. Just take a look at the past uh, 50 years. In agriculture, in industry, manufacturing, we find out that the machine has become a better and a better we have AI right now. We have uh, automatic machines. We have the robot to replace the simple manual labor. And the costs have been lower and lower. So more and more people, they would like to leave the manufacturing industry and agriculture to move up the ladder to highly paid service sector, uh, not only for the salary, but also uh, the service sector are people-to-people -people work. 
So that's going to be more interesting than working on the supply chain. So I think this is the natural evolution for the industrial uh, for industrial progress for uh, the supply chain. Mm. Um, therefore, for all of the developed nations, if you take a look at North America and uh, Japan, Korea, and European Union, all those countries uh, have a very, very large share of the third industry or the service sectors. So I think this is going to be the trend in China as well. Mm. And at the policy front, what more can be done to facilitate the development of China's service industry, especially for the uh, private enterprises? Well, in a macro policy, I think everybody already knows that China has uh, established a, a special office for the private sector. It's called the Private Sector Bureau in the NDRC. Uh, NDRC is the most important uh, macro policy maker in China, if you're familiar with the system. When it directly form a bureau, that means for the private sectors, they will have exclusive and express channel to uh, express their opinions and demand to the government and get the uh, most swift and quick policy respond. So I think this is actually a very active signal. Mm. And as well, especially for the service sector, I think uh, for the fiscal policies and also for uh, the credit policies, I think the government has issued many, many uh, favorable loans uh, because everybody knows for several uh, service sector, they always like of collaterals because they don't have the heavy machines. They don't have many of the houses as a collateral for the loan. So the government will give them the tailor-made uh, you know, credit uh, to help them to get the credit so they can expand their businesses. And also for the taxation, uh, they have provided more of the tax uh, rebate for the service sector, especially for the high-tax sectors, for the consulting sectors and education sectors as well. Um, so these are providing more help uh, to the service sectors. And as well as we have heard, uh, there are many support to help uh, the private or the individuals to set up their own companies in the service and the culture sectors because uh, these are very likely to solve more of the employment uh, issues uh, for the newly graduate. So I think more and more things is coming out in uh, the coming uh, three or four months. Uh, you're going to see uh, the policies uh, will come out one by one. That's Chi Chiang, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The UK's second largest city has effectively declared itself bankrupt. Birmingham City Council filed a Section 114 notice halting all spending except on essential services. The deficit arose due to difficulties in settling historic equal pay claims worth up to £760 million, more than its annual budget for services. Councils across England and Wales are under severe financial stress as a result of rising social care costs, soaring inflation, and reduced income. For more, we are now joined on the line by Mike Bastian, Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton. Mike, thanks for joining us. No problem. Hello. Um, so what does the City Council's bankruptcy mean and what immediate effects does this have on residents, businesses and the overall functioning of the city? Well, its impact is, is, is they made it very, very clear that they will only spend on what they consider to be essential core services uh, that really have to be protected 
uh, in the in the short term. So, so that's the impact. So, so they will halt all other spending. So what do they mean by core services, essential spending? They mean um, inspecting food premises, electricity and gas supply, particularly to schools and hospitals, refuse removal, sewage collection and disposal, street lighting, and one or two other areas. So those have been prioritized and they will be protected. But all other spending and all other projects and services uh, cannot continue. Okay, so Birmingham City Council has attributed its financial crisis largely to historic equal pay claims uh, amounting to up to £760 million. Uh, could you explain the origin of these claims and why they have posed such a substantial challenge to the council's budget? Sure, I mean, they, they go back over a decade, over 10 years, and it was um, women in female-dominated roles, such as cleaners, um, caterers, started to, to realize and complain quite justifiably and understandably about uh, the pay gap and missing out on bonuses in particular that staff in more male-dominated roles, such as refuse collectors, were getting. And this was picked up by one of the trade unions, the GMB, the General Municipal Boilers, Boilermakers Union, which went all the way to the Supreme Court and won the case. Uh, and from that minute on, the the the, the Birmingham City Council has been liable to make up this pay gap. It has to be said a fresh claim was made quite recently, again, for another 3,000 women by, again, the GMB. So, so that's the origins. And yes, they're, they're claiming that that bill now will amount to £760 million. Mm-hmm. Yes, but apart from this um, equal pay claims, actually the funding gap for local authorities across England and Wales is expected to reach two billion pounds or more this year. So, what broader systemic factors might have contributed to the financial strain faced by local councils? Well, systemic factors. I mean, the, the, all councils, including Birmingham, claim there have been dramatic cuts from central government. Uh, Birmingham claim that that uh, those cuts over the last decade total a billion, a billion pounds. Rising inflation, if not rampant inflation. Uh, rising demand for services as well amid the cost of living crisis, particularly adult social care services, and also falling income as well. So business rates income uh, has dramatically um, reduced. So a combination of those is really hitting uh, local authorities, not just in Birmingham's case. It looks as though there's quite a few other uh, councils who are in a very, very similar position, I'm afraid. Yeah, but Rishi Sunak said earlier that it was not the government's job to bail out the council for its financial mis- mismanagement. How do you look at this, and, and what do you think should be the government's role and responsibility in assisting local councils facing financial challenges like Birmingham? I think the Prime Minister's initial reaction is very, very poor, very disappointing, and hopefully he can reflect on that. He Certainly, the government cannot be expected to say, bail out uh, councils that suddenly declare such financial uh, such financial dire, dire situation. However, surely it's the Prime Minister and the central government who are accountable, and ultimately they should be getting involved and they should have been managing this far more closely and working with Birmingham City Council and others in order to avoid this happening and maybe some sort of gradual reduction in spending, uh, a gradual increase in funding as well. So the central government's role is very, very much one of supporting and managing and, and they, they haven't been doing that and it doesn't look as though they, they, they want to get involved much either.
Mm-hmm. Um, so what changes or reforms could be considered to create a more stable and sustainable financial environment for local authorities in the UK? Well, certainly greater transparency. So, so as I said at the start, this, this dispute, which is largely the, the, seen as the cause, this dispute with um, equal pay has been going back over 10 years. So you'd think even back then, over 10 years ago, they should have been aware, the council councillors should have been aware of the the, the actual cost and the implications of this. So, so greater transparency, forward planning, longer planning, and also greater involvement with central government on a regular basis so that this can be managed better, more transparently, with a view to looking longer term. So I think generally better overall management is, is the way forward and better relations between central and local government to foresee this happening uh, and that it could have been foreseen. Okay, so back to the crisis in Birmingham. We know Birmingham has experienced economic success in recent years, but its current financial woes raise concerns about its future prospects. So how can the council and the city as a whole work towards financial recovery and maintaining um, its status as a thriving urban center? Sure. Well, there's several things. I mean, we could continue to cut spending. So it's on non-statutory services, but things like uh, parks and gardens and green spaces and, and grants to community groups, however dire that is, so they, they could continue to, to look at their spending and, and to make more cuts. They do have a stake in Birmingham Airport. They do have assets, which you, you think uh, could, could be used to raise much-needed funds. They're also the single largest owner of property in the area, 26,000 acres they own, which is more than any other UK local authority. So you think there's there's, there's an opportunity there again for um, liquidising or li- <coughs> raising money through through those assets. And then, of course, there's always the dreaded, but there's always the uh, an increase in council tax, the local tax that people pay to their councils, councils that they could run, could could increase, and some have increased quite dramatically as well to increase their spending. So maybe a combination of those. Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, actually, despite the financial challenges, Birmingham remains open for businesses and is hosting major events like the 2026 European Athletics Championships, right? So how do you see the city's ability to balance its financial recovery with its commitments of hosting these events and serving its residents? Mm. Well, certainly the, the 2026 um, European Athletics Championship is a, is a major highlight for the city and a major coup. Uh, when they when they they won that that bid, so I certainly think that will go ahead, and every effort will be made to make sure it goes ahead and it goes smoothly, uh, and it should benefit, should have some economic benefit to the city. So I think they'll look much more uh, in a much more focused way on the economic benefits to the city and the, and, the, and the legacy as well. It has to be said that the reports on Munich, Munich Airport 2022 equivalent, are positive. They they had a lot of um, viewing figures, viewing hours, it was very, very popular. And that seems to have been very, very positive. So there's no reason why this can't actually have a positive economic impact on the city, but it just has to be managed very, very carefully and almost certainly uh, a role for central government as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Mike Bastian, Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Saudi Arabia has extended its 1 million barrel per day voluntary crude oil production cut until the end of the year, according to Saudi press agency. 
Riyadh implemented crude oil production cuts in July, which was then extended to include August and September. In effect, the country's production for the coming months of October, November, and December will be approximately nine million barrels per day. The report added that the voluntary cut will be reviewed monthly to consider further reduction or increase in production. For more, we are now joined by Dr. Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so, what are the main reasons behind Saudi Arabia's decision to extend its voluntary crude oil production cut of one million barrels per day until the end of the year? I think uh, I think the, the the very main reason, or the the most important reason for this uh, cut of one million barrels per day until the end of this year, it, uh, could be attributed to the economic uh, problem because uh, we know that uh, in, in in the last year, uh, about this time of the last year, Saudi Arabia and other states from OPEC plus uh, the 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 energy exporting states, they actually reduced the oil. Uh, production and also uh, as the first in the first half of this year, they also the second time they uh, they they cut uh, the the oil production. So this is a, could be uh, perceived as the third time uh, the third time within the year that Saudi Arabia made the decision to further cut one million barrels per day. Uh, and also this is a very very continuous uh, measure that taken by Saudi Arabia to try to influence the prices prices of global oil. Through the the, the 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 energy cut, the production cut, or the exporting cut, because uh, from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, of course, it, uh, including other uh, oil exporting and producing countries, the the, the higher press of the oil means uh, much more uh, economic revenue, the economic benefits. Uh, so uh, uh, from their uh, maneuvers, from the, what they did during the past uh, one year, they hope to uh, encourage. Uh, and motivate the price to go higher, so that they can get more uh, revenues from this energy exporting, energy production. But uh, with the uh, with the, the the performance of the market, especially the energy consuming market, uh, it does not happen. It didn't happen. So that is why I think Saudi Arabia try to uh, try to want to try more one more time to cut uh, further. Uh, one billion barrel per day until the end of this year, and try to uh, push the price higher. That means to to get much more energy revenues uh, from this exporting and the production. Hmm. Uh, so, how do you anticipate these extended cuts will impact the global oil market in terms of supply, demand, and pricing dynamics? I think it will, it of course, uh, influence uh, the the very structure uh, of the oil market. Uh, in terms of supply, demand, the pricing dynamics, because uh, we were talking about we're talking about energy, we're talking about the kind of system. It's the system not only included the the, the supply, but also that we have to take the the the, uh, the market of the demands into our consideration. Uh, because yes, on the one hand, means that uh, much uh, when we're talking about the oil, uh, like other uh, like other supplies, that means the supply becomes zero, the demand grows. It means the higher prices. But now the problem is that uh, the the supply is stable, and to some extent it becomes stable. And on the other hand, the, the demand uh, market that uh, grows not so fast, not so rapidly. So that means that, that they have to control. Uh, if you want to get get much more revenue from the uh, oil sector, especially the oil exporting sector, it means that you have to control the production 
uh, then the lower the lower the numbers and also to encourage the 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 the, the prices to go higher. So that is why I think in the future, uh, from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, also from the perspective of, of Russia and other exporting oil exporting countries, they hope that the prices can go further higher. That means they can get, give them much more revenues. But I, but the, from the perspective of the demanding, especially uh, we have know that uh, there were still a lot of difficulties in the, a lot of countries' economic situations, not only including United States, but also I think for a lot of other. Uh, the, the 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 growing econo- economies all across the world, they their growing speed is not so fast. So that is why uh, even I think the the, the Saudi Arabia and other uh, oil exporting countries they cut the, the 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 oil production every day. I don't think it will strongly uh, push uh, very motivation into the prices of the, the of the international oil market. In the future, so I think maybe it will become stable. Maybe that the prices will go higher in the next few days, but I think it will go back to the very stable status in the future. Okay, but this also comes at a time when there are tensions between the White House and Saudi Arabia, particularly regarding energy collaboration with Russia. So, how might this move further、um, impact the relations、um, and energy geopolitics? Yes, you are right. It's、uh, and when we're talking about energy,、uh, especially the energy. Uh, geopolitics. That is a very、uh, important division between、uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Because the United States wants Saudi Arabia to produce more oil, and also wants Saudi Arabia to persuade others,、uh, the, the oil production states, other oil producing states, and other oil exporting states, to produce much more oil. So that means they can give the pressure to Russia, and also they could give the、uh, give the. The pressure to the states that supporting Russia, and also they could in,、uh, help the the, the the European countries who have already cut the energy connection with Russia. So of course that is the United States want. But、uh, from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, they want okay if the more you go into the market, especially that the Saudi, that the Russia is still exporting oil into the the, the, the international markets、uh, through other channels. It means that the oil prices will go down. And it also hurt everybody, including、uh, Saudi Arabia itself, and also including Russia. And meanwhile, within the past years, we have already witnessed very clearly that Saudi Arabia does not want to become the follower, continue to be the follower of United States policy and United States Middle East strategy. So that is why Saudi Arabia, especially,、uh, I mean, the Riyadh, they want to be independent. They want to have their own voices in the international arena. So I think the further, on the one hand. Uh, that divide the further divide the 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 distance between、uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States in terms of the uh, energy uh, uh, the the energy geopolitics and on the other hand it will become、uh, maybe for Saudi Arabia the kind of new direction to develop a much more independent policy for itself and also for the regional countries.、Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.